0: Welcome to this podcast from Riverside Church Whitstable. We hope you find it helpful and encouraging. If you would like to find out more information about us, why not check out our website at riversideuk.org, our Facebook page, or follow us on Twitter at WhitRiverside. Today we're starting our new series called Passion. Uh, Over the next five weeks, we're going to be looking at the events that Jesus went through in essentially his last week before the cross, um, often referred to as Passion Week uh, in some church circles because well, for two main reasons, because of the strength of emotion that Jesus went through uh, during the events of his last week on earth, but also the word passion comes from a Latin word, passio, which means to suffer or to endure suffering. So Passion Week is about Jesus' depth and breadth of emotion, but also the suffering that he went through, uh, particularly in that last sort of greatest week of his life. And our hope is that as we travel through some of these events over the next few weeks, rather than sort of just arriving at Easter, uh, we're going to get there with our hearts kind of prepared and more sort of, um, I think, immersed in the story, in the culture with which these events happened. So we're trying to bring some of the humanity uh, into this story, because sometimes Easter can just arrive and it's an event in our diaries. It's a holiday, Easter eggs, everything else. But actually... The origins of the Easter story are so powerful. So I hope is we gen- journey through together and we get more of an understanding of what Jesus and the uh, disciples went through. bit of background for you. First of all, you need to understand that the Romans were the world force at the time. If you were part of a Roman garrison, maybe stationed in Jerusalem during the last week of Jesus' life, Maybe you record something like this in your diary. On Friday the 3rd of April, AD 33, Joshua Ben-Joseph, commonly called Jesus of Nazareth, was executed. He had just come into the city just six days before, leading a crowd of supporters down the hillside from the Mount of Olives. Over the next few days, the whispers and rumours and arguments about him swirled around the city. He created a disturbance in the temple He advocated non-payment of taxes. He defied the temple purity laws. He had attacked the authorities, both Jewish and Roman. In the end, he was betrayed by one of his own followers, hurriedly tried by the local aristocracy and extradited to the Roman occupying forces. After some political bargaining and negotiations with various powerful groups and individuals, the Romans agreed to execute him. Their soldiers, a group of auxiliaries from Samaria, beat him so badly that his death on the cross occurred with unusual speed. A rich well-wisher asked the Romans for permission to bury him, and his corpse was hurriedly interned in order to comply with local religious laws. Just another Galilean rabble rouser, another would-be messiah, another footnote in the history of Roman imperial politics, just a routine killing on the edge of the empire, nothing to write home about. And that's maybe how you would have seen this last week of Jesus if you'd have been part of the Roman garrison that was stationed in Jerusalem at the time. The Romans ruled Jerusalem, Judea and beyond. They were a military dictatorship. They were the absolute power in the area at the time and they ruled with brutality. At the time, the Roman Empire consisted of about well between 30 and 50 million people. And uh, this map shows you just the extent of their reign, stretching from Jerusalem right across into France and Spain and the top of Africa, all around the Mediterranean. And at the time of Jesus, this empire was still growing. It hadn't reached its zenith. And the Roman occupation of these lands had created something called the Pax Romana, a Roman peace. So the fear that you lived under if you occupied the Romans meant there was no conflict in these areas. You could travel at peace across these different countries, which resulted in trade and travel. The Romans put in lots of infrastructure with that famous phrase, what have the Romans ever done for us? They put in roads and bridges and aqueducts and virus. But basically, this, all this infrastructure was designed to funnel wealth back to Rome. To funnel the wealth back to Rome. Because if you lived in one of these occupied lands, you would have been taxed. The roads would have been tolled and this empire generated enormous wealth funneled back into rome the headquarters and if you lived under roman occupied territory you kept your head down the romans were absolute law you had no recourse for justice you paid your taxes and you hopefully you kept out of trouble romans often put in place puppet leaders like they did it like herod who was basically looked after gallantly on behalf of the romans and they also chose Sympathetic high priest to rule the temple in Jerusalem. And in return for cooperation with the Romans, these people enjoyed power and they enjoyed wealth. One high priest's house that's been excavated in Jerusalem was over 600 square metres, full of baths and frescoes and fine glassware. Uh, It kind of showed some of the trappings that went with collaboration and cooperation with the Romans. Where did the priests get their money from? Well, if the Romans got their money from taxes and tolls, the priests got their money from the temple. The temple in Jerusalem was a vast money-making machine. Herod had massively extended the temple. His plan was to turn Jerusalem into a number one tourist attraction and place of pilgrimage. He wanted to make it one of the wonders of the ancient world. Now, you might not have an idea what the temple looked like when Herod had finished. I thought I'd give you a quick video flyby just to give you an idea of what the temple looked like in Jerusalem at Jesus' time. And here is a bit of a 3D model here. So Herod had enlarged into this massive courtyard on the Temple Mount. He built this huge central section, colonnades all around the outside to provide shady places to sit, overlaid the main temple with marble and gold, and turned it into this huge, huge place that must have stood out miles around. All around the outside, you've got the court of the Gentiles, where the Gentiles, non-Jews, could come, and then basically the intersections where only Jews could go. So Herod's plan, by doing all this work on the temple, was to turn Jerusalem into a must-see city. For Jews, it became the place of ultimate pilgrimage. There may have been between four to 8 million Jews in the Roman Empire at the time of Jesus. And most of them would want to travel to Jerusalem, to the temple, particularly at times of festival like Passover. And in Jesus' last week, Jerusalem would have been heaving with pilgrims, packed out with pilgrims, pilgrims trying to find places to stay in an already crowded city, and then camping on the hillsides all around Jerusalem. Think Glastonbury plus That's what Jerusalem would have looked like at a time of Passover. Herod may have also wanted to make himself more popular by extending the temple, but he was hated just as much afterwards as before. And if you're a poor person living in the lower section of Jerusalem and you're gazing up at this incredible edifice, you might be wondering, well, maybe the money might have been better spent elsewhere. Because if you were one of those who were living hand-to-mouth in Jerusalem at the time. You were only one bad harvest away from disaster. Most of your income would have been taken up with taxes. Maybe up to 60% of your income would have been taken by taxes. And if you couldn't afford to pay your taxes, you were in big, big trouble. And the only place to lend money from, there were no banks at the time, was the temple. You could lend money from the temple, but normally at a high rate of interest. And so you'd have to hope and pray that next year you had a bumper harvest to pay it back. Otherwise, the temple could seize your lands and extend their already growing property portfolio. Now, interestingly, in the Torah, there was a law enshrined in the first five books of your Bible, the Torah, that said every seven years you were to release someone from debt, the Sabbath. So every seven years you release someone from debt. Now, that was designed to help avoid people falling into long-term, spiralling debt. But paradoxically, it did create other issues, because on the seventh year, who was going to lend you some money if they thought it wouldn't get paid back? So one rabbi, Rabbi Hillel, thought it would be good to write a special dispensation to get round this law. So essentially, they figured a way around. Uh, but unfortunately, all this did was create long-term debt and poverty within the Jewish community. Community. And so then, this is the Jerusalem that Jesus is about to ride into today. This elite people, basically in charge, appointed by the Romans, rich and powerful, using the resources of the temple to make themselves rich. So it's no wonder the people said to Jesus, Are you the Messiah? Are you the one going to rescue us from the Romans? and from the rich overlords. So it's really helpful to think about these things as we think about what Jesus was trying to address in the last week of his life. We don't exactly know when this last week happened. We think it was around AD 33. There are various things that point to that in the Scriptures, but around AD 33... Interestingly, when Jesus was crucified, there was a partial eclipse. And it says in the scriptures, doesn't it, that basically the day went strangely dark on the Friday of AD 33, when the Passover would have fallen. And when there's a partial eclipse, also the moon goes red. Have you been, been out and seen a partial eclipse? You'll know that the way the moon changes and goes red. And Joel records prophetically, I saw wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth. The sun returned to darkness And the moon turned to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. There seem to be signs in the heavens that point to AD 33 being the time when this happened. So I want to look today at the the first event of this week, the entry into Jerusalem of Jesus. So let's read from Mark's Gospel. At this point in AD 33, most people wanted Jesus dead for a whole variety of reasons. And let's, Jesus is just about to turn up the heat even more with this special staged entry into Jerusalem. Let's read from Mark's gospel. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying, go to the village ahead of you and just as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're doing this, Say, the Lord needs it and will be sent back shortly. They went and found a colt outside the city, tied at a doorway. And as they untied it, some of the people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and their people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut from the fields. And those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Jesus entered Jerusalem from the east, riding on a colt. When we read this story, we think, oh, does he supernaturally know there's a colt present in the city? Does he supernaturally un- see this cult present that can be untied and brought to him? Well, I think it's probably more likely that he'd arrange for this cult to be there. He had friends and, and supporters in the city, and they probably arranged for this cult to be present for his disciples to go and collect. There doesn't always have to be a supernatural reason why things happen in the life of Jesus, and I think he'd arranged for the cult to be there. The cult was a very important part of what was about to happen. Let's find a bit more out about Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that Jesus was about to ride into. Here's a bit of a top-down map. It's a very small city, only about one kilometre square, Jerusalem. Densely, densely populated. There are three main areas. On the map here, I've highlighted the upper city in purple. And this is where the wealthy lived. This was the rich neighbourhood. This is where Herod's temple, uh, Herod's palace was. This is where the rich people lived up on the high ground. Why did you live on the high ground if you were rich? Well, it was well ventilated, it was airy, the views were good, and more importantly, when it rained, all the drains ran downhill. So all the muck and all the mess ran away from your house and became somebody else's problem. And it ran down into the lower city. And this is where you lived if you were poor. The streets were crowded, lack of ventilation, fell water and flooding in the winter. Narrow streets, crowded multiple occupancy housing, densely populated, stifling. People crammed into houses and hovels and maybe living on the streets. If you lived in the upper city, you had fresh water coming straight to you. If you lived in the lower city, You had to gather water from open fountains and systems. And so even just the daily existence of staying alive, let alone having enough food, having enough water, was a challenge. Jerusalem had no waste removal system, so all the waste ran down and out, and you might see right at the bottom there, the infamous Dung Gate is right on the bottom corner of the hill there, and that's basically where all the rubbish and the muck would have accumulated and been taken out of the city. The valley of Hinnom, just beyond, became a dumping place full of animal carcasses, sewage, rubbish, and possibly even the corpses of the poor. That became Jerusalem's big rubbish dump. And by Jesus' time, it became known as Gehenna, which is a word for hell. Hell was on the doorstep there, just the the burning, rotting, smelling, putrefying rubbish just outside the city walls. You get a sort of impression what sort of place Jerusalem was, a place of real mixture, a place of real polarity. The Temple Mount occupied a huge part of the city, you can see it there. And again, if you lived in that lower city, imagine looking up at the glory and splendour of the temple and looking up the hill at the rich elite and thinking, well, who's going to come and save us? Who's going to come and make a difference in our lives? Here I'm living in squalor, barely able to feed myself. Thinking about those two areas in the city where the money and the power was. You're trying to get by on a handful of bread every day. And you're gazing up at a magnificent marble-clad temple. And you wonder if you can even afford to survive, let alone pay for a sacrifice within the temple grounds. So this is Jerusalem in Jesus' time. A magnificent temple, a hill occupied by the rich. And down the hill, cramped alleyways, crowded shops and houses, Animals, nervously crying out, about to be slaughtered. A city of probable, incredible ritual purity and at the same time also probably unimaginable filth. This is the Jerusalem that Jesus is about to ride into. Jesus comes in from the east. He comes down the Kidron Valley, possibly through the Don Gate, and then up to the temple steps. We know this is Passover week. So the place was absolutely full, rammed full of pilgrims who had come to Jerusalem. So he would have come down huge crowds and tents as he came down the valley into Jerusalem. When we see Palm Sunday on <laughs> Christian pictures, we see beautiful white streets, don't we? With a handful of well-behaved people with palms, you know, like a, like a, whole, like a, a royal procession. And Jesus sort of walking up the middle. No, his, his followers are trying to get him through the crowds which are crushing around him, the pilgrims and the, and the, and the smell and the heat. And he's riding a colt. Now, a colt is a very small animal. And so it's like Jesus riding a children's bicycle into Jerusalem at that time. was almost, almost a comical thing that he's doing as he goes into Jerusalem. As he goes to these crowds of thousands and thousands of pilgrims. Why is he riding a colt? Well, the prophet Zechariah, some 500 years earlier, he wrote this. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is making a claim to this prophecy. He's making a claim to be king. He's fulfilling the criteria of Zechariah's words. Riding this small animal into Jerusalem. The king is coming righteous and victorious to Jerusalem. But he's a different sort of king. He's not coming in majesty and power and triumph. He's coming to the poor side of the city. He's riding an animal too small for him. He's coming to the crush of those who can't even afford to stay in the city. He's making his way through the dirtiest gate into Jerusalem. He's bringing a different sort of kingdom, a different sort of king. And this is really important because somebody else is also entering the city at the same time. From the west, Pontius Pilate is coming in military procession into the city. The Romans held on to the royal, the vestments, the priestly vestments that the priest would need to carry out Passover. It was part of their control and their power. And Pontius Pilate coming in in military garrison with burnished bronze and, and armour and, and military pomp and circumstance and he's bringing the vestments to Caiaphas, the high priest, to say, you can borrow these just for long enough for the Passover and then I'll have them back. It's like lending the keys to the car. You can borrow these, but when you're finished, we're having them back. And so Pontius Pilate is riding in in military power into the rich side of the city at the same time that Jesus is riding in to the east side of the city. You see what's happening here? A clash of kingdoms. A clash of world powers. Two completely polar opposite kingdoms are colliding in Jerusalem two different forms of kingdom two different forms of power that's what's happening right at this moment we talked a few weeks ago didn't we about the kingdom of God being inaugurated through the life of Jesus Jesus is about to go to the cross in just a few days the kingdom is breaking in so Jesus Jesus chooses to ride in Jerusalem on a cult saying the king is here the king has come But he's not a conquering king in the way you think he is. He's not a military king. He's not like Pilate entering from the west of the city with power and military might. This is a different sort of king and a different sort of kingdom. If you read on through the prophecy of Zechariah, it says this, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is the nature of the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. The Prince of Peace is riding into Jerusalem, the Prince who will break the battle bow, who will bring peace to the nations, whose rule will extend across the whole face of the earth. This is the kingdom that Jesus is ushering in to Jerusalem on that day. So he doesn't come like a warlike messiah, he doesn't come with military might, he comes on a, an animal too small for him, with a few friends waving palm branches, fighting his way through the dust and the dirt and the smell, up into the Temple Mount. So I'm hoping today, as we've described this, it gives you an idea of the richness of what's going on, on this day in the life of Jesus Often, as I said, we think of Palm Sunday as this kind of sanitised thing, but actually this is a messy, messy thing that's taking place all those years ago. Jesus is risking a high-risk confrontation with the powers that be in the temple and in military authority. A direct challenge to those in power in Jerusalem at the time. A new king is coming, and he's about to turn everything on its head. He's bringing a new kingdom. There was a choice that day, wasn't there? If you saw Jesus riding in, Hosanna, blessed be the name of the Lord, the king comes. Who are you going to choose? Who are you going to align yourself with? Which kingdom are you going to choose? Is it the kingdom of power, authority, wealth? Or is the kingdom of the strange king riding in on the donkey? Which king are you going to choose? And that was a challenge that went out to all the people that day. And it's the same challenge that Jesus represents us with every single day. It's like Jesus rides in today on the colt and says, which king are you going to choose? Is it within the wealth and the power and the affluence, or is it a different sort of kingdom, a different sort of king?" As I was praying about this, I thought, what authorities in our life does Jesus want to challenge today? What high places does he want to confront in us? What high ground is Jesus looking to retake in your life? Because he comes to the low places, he comes to the poor and the oppressed and the needy and those living hand to mouth. He comes from the east side of the city. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us about this talk, to hear more or to find out about Riverside Church Whitstable, then visit our website at riversideuk.org. Also, you can contact us through our Facebook page or tweet us at WhitRiverside.